0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Perhaps there was a time, or so we've been told, when medical ethics was confined to the doctor-patient relationships. As long as doctors were true to their Hippocratic oaths, as long as they acted with compassion and wisdom toward their patients, then all expectations were met. But life is more complicated today, and so is healthcare, an undertaking, like all others, that is influenced by social, political, legal, and cultural factors. Nothing is value free. Today's guest will help us understand the dynamics of these factors in healthcare policy and practice. We are honored to have with us today Professor Shai Lavi, who will be talking about his new book, Bioethics and Biopolitics in Israel socio-legal, political, and empirical analysis. Professor Shai Lavi is director of the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. He's also a professor in the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University and co-director of the Minerva Center for the Study of the End of Life. Professor Lavi's earlier book, The Modern Art of Dying, A History of Euthanasia in the United States, won the 2006 Sociology of Law Distinguished Scholarly Book Award of the American Sociological Association. Shailavi, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So uh, I grew up most of my life in a suburb of Tel Aviv. I spent two years early childhood in the United States when my parents were there uh, following their vocation uh, so I don't have a, <laughs> a deep uh, Israeli thick Israeli accent um, but you'll catch me here and there. I uh, did my PhD uh, in Berkeley at the University of California, Berkeley and since uh, 2001 I've been a member of the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. Uh, In the past two years, I've been also the director of the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute.
0: And what inspired you to a life of scholarship?
1: Um, Well, I remember myself as most uh, scholars do, I guess, uh, reading books from uh, early childhood, but mainly having these disputes with friends on philosophy. Uh, philosophical issues, uh, on religious issues. I think that since then, the questions of politics, religion, uh, culture have been on my uh, mind. And I've uh, been pursuing them through a variety of uh, disciplines, law, sociology, and also philosophy.
0: And how did you come to write this book?
1: So, bioethics and biopolitics in Israel is actually a joint uh, enterprise. I worked on it with uh, several of my very uh, respectable colleagues: Hagai Boaz, Yaela Shiloni-Dolev, Nadav Davidovich, and Dani Firk. All scholars in the field of bioethics and biopolitics. Uh, we started off as a research group with several other members who ended up being contributors to this collected uh, volume of essays. We worked at the Edwin J. Safra Center for Ethics at Tel Aviv University for several years, meeting and discussing these questions of bioethics and biopolitics. Uh, it was clear to us that we were unsatisfied with uh, the current uh, situation of the debates in Israel on bioethics, and we can go into that in a minute. And we were trying to offer an alternative that wouldn't use the abstract uh, language of philosophy, but would understand questions of bioethics in their cultural and political context.
0: Well, let's start with some basic definitions. What are bioethics and biopolitics? So
1: I I appreciate the question because um, while... There is a mainstream or a common answer to this question. We try to problematize it. So basically, bioethics is a study of ethical issues emerging from advances in biology and medicine. They date back, as you mentioned, to the Hippocratic Oath, uh, dated to the 5th or 3rd century BC. We're not quite sure about the exact date. And there were recent developments in the field of uh, bioethics in the past uh, uh, 60, 70 years since uh, World War, War II. Uh, it was clear after the the Nazi experience, after the Holocaust, after uh, terrible experimentations with human subjects that uh, the medical profession needed to revisit and revise its, uh, its ethical guidelines. Uh, this is true not only because of the uh, terrible Nazi experience, but even in liberal uh, democracies like the United States, uh, experiments were taking place on human subjects without their full consent, quite often jeopardizing their health. Uh, the Tuskegee uh, study of untreated syphilis in the uh, African-American uh, society in the United States from 1932 to 1972 is also a good example where um medical professions uh and researchers conducted uh, experiments with uh, the african-american population without telling them that there was a cure to syphilis so they were actually experimenting and observing the natural history of untreated syphilis uh, at a time where at least since the 1940s there was a validated use of penicillin which was not offered to these subjects so it's not just what we know uh, from the terrible experimentations and the holocaust, but more generally that we needed to revise our understanding of bioethics and then uh, in this context uh, there was the Belmont uh, report uh, following the Tuskegee uh, experiments to try and formulate new standards for medical care medical ethics. Um, today it is common again this is the mainstream uh, position, the one that we challenge in the book but there is a mainstream approach to bioethics which tries to highlight three or four basic principles of bioethics that need to be followed Um, the first and the most important one is autonomy Uh, that is self-rule that's translated usually to informed consent that is that healthcare providers should not treat patients without their informed consent, their or their uh, lawful surrogates' uh, consent, um, and uh, that's the first principle of liberal bioethics, as we call it. Then the second principle—it's uh, actually two sub-principles related to this—is beneficence and non-maleficence. Uh, that is avoidance of harm and the active pursuance of positive benefits. So, medical treatment should further the benefits of a patient's interest and avoid harming the patient. Now, these may seem uh, today trivial, but they're very important. And then the, the, the third uh, main principle is that of justice understood as distributive justice. That is the principle that requires that we distribute the goods and services, including medical goods and services, fairly. And in the context of medical experimentation, also the risks and dangers of medical experimentation should be uh, divided equally so it's not just the marginal groups of society that are uh, experimented on and that the better off uh, parts of society benefit more than others from medical advancement. So these are the, basically the, the three or four major principles of bio-bioethics. What they share in common is a sense of abstract moral uh, principles that we find in many other contexts, autonomy, uh, utility, uh, equal distribution of resources, so social justice, these are very general broad principles that have been playing a central role in current discussions of bioethics. Um, We try to, sorry,
0: No, I was just going to ask, aren't those universal values?
1: Exactly. These are universal values. And part of the problem is that um, different societies, as we observe, have different moral principles. And it's very tricky, not to say misleading, to think of bioethics simply as some universal values and not to take into account the way in which different cultures different traditions, different civilizations treat these questions. So not for all cultures or societies or polities is the autonomous will of the individual as important as it is in other societies. Um, This is also true, as we will discuss uh, shortly, uh, for Israeli society that that sees itself as somewhere in between East and West, between liberal societies and other traditions including the jewish uh jewish tradition and jewish culture so this would be uh one example also the prioritization of the of the principles may differ from one society to another so that's one one challenge of trying to formulate very general universal abstract principles for bioethics where for example does the family figure in in this uh Uh, in in our study of uh, bioethics? Um, Where do questions of public health figure in a bioethics that is primarily focused on the will of the individual? Uh, So these are questions that come up uh, in the research and also specifically in the book.
0: And the book illustrates them very, very well. Um, You you discuss the ethical, political issues throughout the lifespan, from before birth to actually after death. Uh, The the chapters on end-of-life issues are very illustrative. So let's begin at the end. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) What are the fallacies of liberal bioethics that became clear in the brain death, organ donation controversy?
1: So this is a very important controversy in Israel, attention in Israel. And one of the interesting things is that in other countries, uh, we can think of most liberal uh, democracies, this actually hasn't been a major issue. So let me try and lay out the the, the problems here. Maybe start with some um, basic assumed principles and then show how the Israeli context problematizes these. So when we talk about, the question of the definition of death. The current and uh, predominant criteria for death in most liberal democracies is brain death. Brain death has been accepted as a criteria since the nineteen uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. And today, uh, in most countries, the brain death definition is accepted uh, once there's no longer uh, activity, brain brain activity, doctors may define the patient as dead even if there's a continuation, an artificial continuation of the activity of the heart and breathing. So we have um, respiratory devices that allow people to continue, that allow bodies basically, to continue the activity of, of breathing and, and, and heart pulse. Uh, while the, the the person is in fact already dead because there's no longer any brain activity. So this, this definition, which was quite novel at the time, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, is today accepted in most places, uh, in most advanced uh, societies. In Israel and in other countries, for example, in Japan, the very definition of brain death is controversial. It's controversial because... Uh, First of all, it's new, and it's based on medical advancements. But even more importantly, it's counterintuitive. You see a warm body breathing, and it's only because the machine tells you the the test, the electric activity in the brain uh, that tells you that the person is, is dead, that you're supposed to accept the fact that your grandmother lying there on the bed looking quite uh, alive is, in fact, no longer living. And so this has raised problems in, in, in several societies, including in Israel, and especially among the religious uh, orthodoxy. But it's important to understand that this is not just a question of religion. It's also something that we can call a phenomenological experience of the body. It looks alive. How can you say it's dead? Um, and, um, and so that's one, one issue. The reason why brain death is such an important development in medicine and in health is because it allows, um, vital organ transplantation. So certain organs. You can only uh, transplant if they continue to be to receive oxygen uh, till the moment of transplantation. so only if the person is defined as dead but still breathing artificially breathing can we have heart transplantation and other vital uh, transplant transplantations so uh, what happens since the 1970s is this development, mutual sort of simultaneous development. of a new definition of death and a new possibility of transplanting uh, the heart. Um, so the basic principle of bioethics in this context is the um, the principle of uh, um, the rule of the of the dead donor. The rule of the dead donor means that you can only transplant a heart from a person if he's already been defined and declared as dead. This is only possible with the brain death definition. So countries that have accepted the brain death definition can have uh, a a heart transplantation. In Israel, this has been quite controversial. Um, So what we see here is um, the way in which America... And the United Kingdom and many other countries have simultaneously transformed their understanding of death and have inserted or integrated heart transplantation as part of their medical system. What happens in Israel is because the brain death definition has been so controversial that it has put into question the possibility of organ uh, donation. So, Israel is one of the only countries in the world where this question is not only controversial, but in which you can, by law, decide, and this is surprising, paradoxical, where you can decide when you are dead. People who do not accept the brain death definition, the law, the Israeli law, under Israeli law, must be treated as if they were alive, though according to medical standards, they are dead. Uh, so this is an example of a, um, a very deep acknowledgement of the plural values of society and the lack of a universal bioethics to the extent that that a person who would be yes to the extent that where a person would be considered dead in one country is considered alive in another country or within the same country a person who believes in brain death would be considered dead a person who does not believe in brain death should be treated as if they're alive Uh, so this is this in itself i think is is striking and and should be uh and should be noted actually new jersey has a similar law that recognizes uh the different values of the ortho jewish orthodox uh community there so um in a way there are examples of this outside of israel but for similar reasons in japan there's also big controversy around these issues. And other countries in the Middle East also have questions. For example, in Egypt, there's a big question, there was a big question about the validity of brain death definition for many years. So that's that's part one of this of this story. Still, uh, Israel wanted to move forward with uh, legalizing uh, transplantations, and the question was how to do that. So, what we're interested in is this uh, political pact that was uh, devised in Israel between um, the medical profession, mainly secular uh, medical profession, and the rabbinate, uh, so the the group that represents uh, Jewish orthodoxy in Israel. And they had actually to weave some kind of an agreement, some kind of a, a special definition of death that would allow the state, to legitimize, uh, organ, uh, donation. And so the, the way that this was done, and this is a very fascinating story that we, we develop at length, we lay out at length in, in the, in the book culminates in 2008 with the passing of a new definition of death in Israel. It's called the brain respiratory definition and following it the brain respiratory law that governs these issues and what the israeli lawmaker did was something unprecedented it combined two very logics two very different definitions of death the brain definition and the respiratory definition turning it into one definition of death setting new criterion for a uh, new criteria for defining for determining the death of the patient basing it on brain death as a criteria but maintaining the traditional respiratory definition of death so that the the brain death becomes a proxy it's not the real thing it's not that if your brain is dead then you're dead it's that if your brain is dead then we know that the respiratory system is no longer functioning and we can declare you dead but that requires a very specific set of medical tests that are inscribed into the law. So the law defines, this is, this is again very unique to Israel, the law actually defines what tests need to be taken so that we actually know that your brain death actually points to the failure of the respiratory system. And this allowed, at least on paper, um, a compromise between the medical profession and the orthodox rabbis um, that allowed orthodox rabbis to sign on to uh, this new definition of death the respiratory brain death and that allowed organ donation at least in principle. And everybody was supposed to be happy with this compromise uh, and with this unique uh, resolution. In practice, it turned out to be more complicated. Um, and um, it, the the reality is, the sociological reality is that uh, among the Orthodox, uh, especially ultra-Orthodox communities, it was, it's still very hard to get consent to organ donation, to vital organ donation from the dead. So even though important rabbis signed on to this compromise, in practice, in action, there's uh, there's still this uh, this more traditional way of thinking about that that doesn't allow uh, the compromise to work out. The lesson from this story, from our point of view, and this is the key point, is not that Israel is so exceptional. I mean, there are, I mean, obviously this this story, and in many ways, this is a unique story. But what we're trying to point out by telling this story is that there's a real question surrounding Brenda. And that whereas other countries have managed very smoothly to um, sidestep the question, to very quickly accept brain death definition. These are hard and pressing questions that surface in the Israeli context, but that are relevant for societies more generally to ponder on, on under what conditions and for what reasons we are ready to accept the brain death uh, definition. So from our point of view, what we see is that Israel as an exception points out to something very interesting that happens as a rule in other countries and that's the way in which scientific and medical definitions and developments change the way we understand ourselves but that these new ways of understanding ourselves are not necessary they don't logically follow from the medical development. there's a moral ethical decision to accept them, and where you see resistance the resistance is not based simply on backward religions, but they're based on a phenomenological experience of the body that, is, that receives uh, political clout and um, gravity from religious uh, groups, but is more generally and could be seen as more generally valid. So that's a story uh, specifically about organ d- uh, donation, brain death, and the problems of liberal bioethics. This is an article that I uh, co-wrote with uh, Haggai Boaz in the book.
0: And what happens in, let's stick with brain death and organ donation, because it is so illustrative, what happens when the expressed wishes of the dying individual differs from those of the family? How is that handled?
1: Thank you. This is also an important point so liberal bioethics is based as I mentioned earlier on the notion of autonomy but uh, we know that not only in Israel but in Sweden and in many other countries the wish of the family especially in questions of organ donation are very important and play a role in medical practice. Specifically, in Israel and in other countries, even if the deceased expressed a will to donate organs, an objection coming from the family will frustrate that will. That is, the medical profession will not operate only on the last wish of the patient, but they will also turn to the family and uh, seek their consent and the reason for that is a sense that um, first of all nobody wants to take the risk of uh, a lawsuit following you know um, doubts about what the patient actually wanted and if the family says say you know he didn't really want it uh, you don't want to enter into these kinds of dilemmas but also uh and perhaps more significantly after the patient is dead um the question of what their will was becomes uh for many of us still very important but not the only thing that needs to be taken into account and so the feelings of the family the values of the family especially if they if the family says we're expressing we actually are expressing the will of the patient they become extremely extremely important and this goes more generally to other topics that we uh, we can touch upon, and where the family plays an important role in the treatment, not only of the body of the dead patient, but also in determining end of life decision making. So,
0: okay, yeah. okay. So, for uh, let's let's switch to the very beginning of life for a mm-hmm. few minutes why is israel in the forefront of assisted reproductive technologies like ivf
1: so the so there there let me first uh, point out to a few statistics regarding uh how uh, in many ways liberal israeli society is when it comes to the use of reproductive uh technologies so um current numbers show that <clears throat> Uh, there are 3,400 fertility treatments per million people in Israel, compared to 300. So less than 10% uh, of that number of uh, fertility treatments. For example, in the UK, um, and this is one example of the use of reproductive uh, technologies. Another example where uh, Israel is very advanced in 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 this field has to do with genetic testing. Uh, Israel has the highest rate of prenatal genetic uh, diagnostic and testing in the world. 80% of Israeli women undergo at least one genetic test during their first uh, pregnancy. Another example, just to give a full picture, has to do with um, stem cell research. So Israel was one of the pioneering Countries to regulate uh, stem cell research. We know that uh, in the United States, this has been extremely controversial practice. Um, during the Bush administration, there was a um, uh, a prohibition on providing state funding to stem cell research. Israel and in Germany, it's criminalized uh, the practice of stem cell research. Uh, Israel exports stem cells to Germany. Uh, just to point out to the historical, uh, hmm. irony, Ironia, that, yes. yes. Uh, so obviously in Germany, stem cell research is prohibited, uh, mainly for historical reasons, but Israel is providing stem cells to Germany. Um, and, um, so, so the, these are a few examples of how liberal or some people would say progressive, uh, or lax Israel is when it comes to the use of reproductive, uh, technologies and scholars have been wondering why uh, this is the case, and uh, several explanations have been given to this, and they all have to do with cultural and uh, political, um, and, and in the cultural and political context of bioethics. So, one reason, one common reason, is uh, that has to do with uh, uh, Israel being. A pronatal uh, society. This is how uh, scholars have been thinking about about Israel. A pronatal society, in the sense that Israel is invested in having, um, basically, as a cultural issue, having more uh, babies. Um, and this has been connected both to Jewish tradition, uh, partly to the biblical uh, command to be fruitful and multiply from Genesis. This has to do perhaps also with the uh, experience of Jewish diaspora and feeling persecuted and the importance of raising a next generation. Obviously, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, this has received um, a certain urgency. In the context of Israel, of the state of Israel, there's also the demographic problem. So people talk about uh, in in the Zionist uh, context, the importance of bringing children uh, to fight uh, against uh, so-called uh, the Arab uh, demog- demography. Now, whether uh, one accepts this or not, as of course I do not accept this as a valid justification, but as a as a as a sociological phenomenon, I think this has some uh, reason what, for why the state is investing so much, not just culturally, but also in terms of monetary, in terms of funding. For um, creating the right incentives for the Jewish uh, population to have more uh, more children, and so this is this is in the context of pronatality uh, as one possible explanation. Another explanation for the use of reproductive technologies has to do again with the Jewish tradition, but from a different perspective. Uh, we know that uh, in the Christian tradition, especially in the in the Catholic and in some uh, evangelical groups uh the whole question of playing God of using uh, medical technology for procreation is seen as uh, uh, as as wrong as a violation of the laws of uh nature as uh taking the place of of God in creation uh and according to some scholars uh jewish um Jewish tradition is more open to the use of medical uh, technology uh, in the name of tikkun olam, uh, that is, uh, in the perfection of the, of the world and the important role that human beings play in that. Uh, uh, so these are, these are some of the, the explanations. I find them less uh, than satisfying or at least not exhaustive in terms of understanding the the distinctness or uniqueness of the of the Israeli of the Israeli uh, case, uh, 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 the sanctity of life that has been uh, been used as sort of a, a uniquely Israeli bioethical principle is obviously not unique to Jewish tradition at all. Uh, sanctity of life or pronatality can lead in, in, in very different directions. Uh, can lead in the U.S. and in, in other places to uh questions of to disputes regarding abortion israel actually has a relatively liberal uh position on on questions of abortion so uh, a more nuanced explanation or let's say uh diverse uh explanations need to need to be taken into account when discussing uh these uh these these issues but it's clear in any event that the question of uh, culture and politics is important in these uh, in these discussions. Um,
0: and what about economics in the United States? Assisted reproductive technologies are a luxury. It's expensive, seldom covered by insurance. In Israel, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. All insurance companies, or many of them, cover these procedures and for all israeli citizens that is jewish muslim that's right. christian yeah.
1: so that, that's a very good that's a very good point so I'll, I'll i'll say two things about this one is yes uh the state uh offers these services these are sub, fully uh, funded and not just for all citizens and i'll get back to that point in a minute but they're fully funded to a very late age, uh, an unlimited cycle of IVF treatments uh, is allowed up to the age of 45 uh, for women, where uh, medical statistics suggest that after the age of 42, the chances uh, of uh, IVF treatment to succeed decrease significantly, Significantly, and the harms, uh, possible harms to the woman's body for taking all these hormones uh, dramatically outweigh uh, potential benefits of these treatments. And still the state uh, subsidizes, practically covers these, uh, these expenses. So that's, that's, that's clearly the the economic side of this is is important. And then the question returns to why is it that the state sponsors and covers uh, these, uh, these treatments Uh, as to the point of uh, coverage for all citizens, that's absolutely the case. Uh, so there's no um, discrimination between Jews, and Muslims, and Christians, and other uh, parts of society on questions of uh, medical uh, uh, care. Um, and in fact, what we see, and this is a, a very important contribution in the book, to study uh, the way uh, Palestinian women, uh, um, citizens of uh, Israel, see IVF treatment. So... Himat Zubi wrote a uh, wrote, wrote contributed to the to the book by saying, you know, what you think is uniquely Jewish about these phenomena is not at all uniquely Jewish. Uh, you see similar phenomena among Arab Israelis or uh, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, and the reason why you see this similarity has to do not only with the Muslim religion, but also with the fact that they're learning from their neighbors, and also because of the state funding both uh, Arab and, and Jews. So I think this is, this is a very, for us, this was uh, revelatory to see that that uh, too much emphasis has been put on the Jewish context and Jewish culture, and you can see similar phenomena, at least in Israel, of other groups in society.
0: What is posthumous reproduction? How does it work? And what are the ethical issues involved? And in what way is it preferable to anonymous sperm donation?
1: So, a posthumous uh, uh, sperm donation is something that you find in um, many societies with uh, advanced uh, medical treatment, but has a special role and a special prominence in Israeli society. So, let me explain what it is. Basically, uh after a person, usually what we have uh, usually the cases have to do with um, the death, uh, the unexpected death by an accident or in war of a young person. This, this is this is about uh, males. so it's about sperm um, posthumous sperm retrieval um, who die uh, unexpectedly, and their families want them to have, uh, um, offsprings and so there's a window between 24 and 72 hours after the person dies where you can harvest their sperm and use it uh, to bring uh, an offspring so usually this 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 process uh, is led in other countries it's led by the spout of the person so they they had planned to have a child, but, uh, but the husband died in the early stage, and the widow wants to have a child from her deceased husband. Um, this this is possible in other countries only if there is uh, a consent prior to death, of course, by the deceased. And the cases for this are very rare because nobody plans this in advance. So usually what happens is this, this is a, an outcome of, uh, of an illness. Uh, and the person donated the sperm in advance, and there could be a posthumous uh, use of, of the sperm. What we have in Israel is a very different uh, scenario. The, the active force behind these cases are usually the grandparents. They want to have a grandchild from their deceased son. And what they ask for, and the courts have as a as a general rule have affirmed this request. Um, what they ask for is sperm retrieval, even if the person does not who is not married, does not have a spouse, does not even have a girlfriend, uh the the courts will affirm the request of the grandparents, there will be sperm retrieval. And then it's up for the to the grandparents to find uh, uh, a woman who would be willing to mother uh, the, the their grandchild, basically. So who would be an active, obviously an active mother, but who would use the sperm of uh, of the deceased. The advantages of this, uh, again, for the people who seek this, is from the grandparents' point of view, this is a continuation of. Uh, uh, they have a grandchild from their deceased son. Uh, for the women involved in these processes, uh, they often uh, mm, prefer a situation where the the identity of the of the donor is known as opposed to an anonymous donor. And and sometimes, oftentimes, they receive some support, financial support, also financial support from the grandparents to raise the child. What what is so um, from a bioethical perspective, what is so interesting about about the Israeli situation is that there's no need for the consent of the deceased, so the courts will accept the request from the grandparents even if there was no real indication that the that the deceased wanted this. And in some cases that the courts have a, have uh, accepted the wish of the grandparents even when there was a spouse and the spouse objected. She said, I, you know, I don't want the sperm of my uh, deceased husband to be used for this purpose, and the courts uh, preferred the wish of the grandparents over that of the widow. And so this is this is a very interesting case, first of all, of family intervention, uh, where the, the, the will of the family, of the relatives, takes precedent over the non-existing will of the deceased, and more so even with the idea that the grandparents have uh their way even with the objection of the spouse
0: what is the rationale for that
1: the rationale for that is that uh again most people would explain this as a, a pronatality, natality so the, the default is to have children rather than not to have children so the assumption is that the seed would have wanted to have children rather than uh die uh childless And so it's this constructed will of the deceased that is used to justify the request of the grandparents. Then the other part of it is that uh, between the spouse's wish not to have children and continue on with her life, and the grandparents' wish to have uh, grandchildren, their wish somehow is seen as uh, more uh, convincing, uh, as more important. Uh, And again, this has to do with the, the default being. To have children, rather than not to have children. The fact that the is, courts oh, have—sorry—the uh, sorry, fact that the courts have developed this doctrine without uh, any indication from the legislator is striking. In fact, uh, um, the position of the Ministry of Justice has been to, to the opposite: to actually follow the will of the deceased, and if such will does not exist, not to, uh, not to carry on. Uh, this process, but, uh, but the courts have, uh, have created this doctrine based on case-by-case decision-making and have really changed and uh, uh, formed a new policy in Israel.
0: Issues of disability care and disability rights have been prominent globally for quite some time now. The book Chapter on Disability quotes the phrase, nothing about us without us. What does that mean, and what are the implications for individuals with disabilities and for policy?
1: so the, the chapter was uh, uh, is a contribution by an important Israeli scholar, Sageta Moore, who has been studying this topic, and uh, uh, what Saagitta is trying to do is to um, import into Israel um, an ethics that has been so important and so central uh, in other countries, especially in the U S and and the idea is that when we think about questions of disability, the question is not simply should not be simply asked in the abstract. What is the best way to develop policies, uh, surrounding disability, but that any discussion of these, um, policies must include, uh, disability people as part of the process. So nothing about us without us basically means that uh, disability people must be included in discussions of uh, of policy. So this goes uh, in a variety of issues from uh, government uh, support uh, to uh, to the rights of person with uh, with disabilities. And while Israel has a very sort of welfareist um, um, policy on disability—it's it, quite paternalistic, and this move uh, actually aims to give uh, people with disability a more active role in determining these these uh, these policies. Again, go from medical health to uh, special education laws—more um, involvement of disability people in these in these processes is crucial in her view. I think that what's um, what, what I find interesting, and this goes beyond a specific contribution to the book, what I find interesting is that you can find discussions of the importance of disability uh, in Israel from a variety of, of perspectives. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, political activism is one important way of thinking about it. But you see also among more traditionalist societies a very good understanding of the importance of caring for uh the disabled and uh and a colleague of mine Nisim uh, Professor Nisim Mizrahi from Tel Aviv University has shown how in Muslim societies for example you can see uh a different way of talking about these these problems but uh, arriving at more or less similar uh similar results so i think that this is again an interesting way of, of exploring uh, bioethics in diverse societies
0: and uh, finally, what is community genetics? How does a community approach to genetic research and screening differ from a public health approach?
1: So <clears throat> public health approach is a top-down approach. It starts with the Ministry of Health, with the professions, with the experts, um, a community-based uh, genetic ethics is, is based on uh, exploring with the communities themselves um, what is their needs and wishes with respect to uh, genetics and genetic testing and uh, genetic care, medical care. So this comes up in Israel in a variety of, of contexts and it has to do with closed-knit societies. So this can be Uh, Ashkenazi Jews, um, but more often the problem emerges in the context of uh, closely knit uh, Arab uh, societies, where there's quite a lot of intermarriage, like in the Jewish Ashkenazi societies, and as a result, and uh, as a, a long historical process, we also find certain genetic diseases. Now, the question is how to treat, how to deal with this. What kind of inter- state intervention is permissible uh, or recommended in these cases? What kind of advice should the community be given? What kind of tests should be provided by the state? So we know Ashkenazi Jews in Israel is a very strong and dominant uh, society and it can care for itself. And uh, uh, and still, the state is quite uh, involved in providing and promoting awareness to um, genetic uh, hereditary uh, diseases that are genetically uh, based, uh, among uh, um, small in small uh, uh, villages and communities, the question is even more thorny in the context of what 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 is the best way to approach this? How much is the community involved in understanding its problems and thinking of possible solutions and determining the right policies? Uh, so the idea of commu- communal-based uh, genetic ethics is to get the community more involved in these discussions. And again, these are things that are discussed universally in the field of uh, bioethics, uh, uh, but they emerge uh, in Israel in a very specific way. Also, with challenging some of the assumptions of bioethics. So, in the general universal bioethics discussion, there is there's this notion that closing societies. Have leaders, and that the leaders of the community so uh, should be involved in in making these decisions. But we know that there is a lot of politics around giving leaders of the community uh, the last say on whatever is good for the community. So these are the kind of questions that uh, we see uh, in 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 this context in Israel with a great awareness both of the importance of the community, but also of the the dangers of rarefying uh, individuals and treating them as part of a communal problem or a community uh, decision-making process.
0: Wow, that uh, gives us a lot to think about. (laughs) Shai, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, Before you go, tell us what you're working on now.
1: So... Thank you, Renee, for this, for this interview, and thank you for this last question. Um, so my current research, and this follows directly from what we've been discussing, is to compare uh, the way that bioethics operates in Germany, Turkey, and Israel. So placing Israel in a broader comparative context. Uh, this is a project together with a colleague from Berlin, uh, Gökçe Yodakul, who's of Turkish descent. And what we do together is look at abortion, organ donation from the dead, and circumcision in these three different countries and try to understand the tensions uh, between religion and secularism and questions of medical authority over the body in these these three very different uh, societies.
0: That sounds like a great project, and I look forward to reading about it. For right now, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. And thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff.
1: Thank you so much, Renee. It was a pleasure having this conversation with you.
0: And for me. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.